dog will lose its shirt. Our dog will lose its shirt. No. Oh, God, save me, save me. I've got dildos rammed into every orifice of my... We don't live in the city anymore. Wrong, <laughs> Wrong location. <laughs> person being randomly murdered with dildos the nashville story (laughs) i heard this crazy story or i read this article of this guy from uh, north carolina him and his wife got into it on christmas eve and she'd been drinking pretty heavily and they got in a fight and at the end of the fight she wound up dead like she hit her head on a banister or some shit like that and died and um christmas morning he wakes the kids up props the dead mother onto the couch, puts sunglasses on her and goes, Mommy ruined Christmas. She had too much to drink last night. And the kids unwrap their presents in front of their dead mother. When did he call the cops? Like, how I, long did I, he wait? I think pretty pretty close to after the kids got done wrapping presents. Why <laughs> Mom he... didn't get off the couch. <laughs> Why would he do that? I don't know. But that's your happy thought to begin the, to begin the episode. I played a video game where the... Uh, <laughs> It might, lover, actually, might actually. The lover shanked the husband and then shoved him into the street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the Nightmare Box. Presenting mistakes were made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across from the beautiful, the effervescent, once again in a badass dress, but she's not shanking me in the street. Kristen Bloom. <laughs> what game have we been playing, sweetheart? Uh, L.A. Noir. L.A. Noir. Um, noir. <laughs> uh, I just think that's hilarious that the coroner was like, it was brilliant. I almost missed it. I was like, the two giant stab ones that... <laughs> Killed him? That you thought initially were created by the Mercedes-Benz logo? <laughs> I was like, how would you almost miss that? That yeah. would have to be some pretty deep stabs to have killed him. <laughs> and we've been playing quite a few games we recently. Lost, but I though. We did lose. We. I told you. I, uh, there's a reason. I've visited that game like three or four times, and I always quit because it's around this part in the game where I start missing clues. I can't read what they're saying to me. Like I'm too did... drunk to be interviewing people. I don't feel like we did that bad either, though. Excuse me. Um, on all of them, we got, like, at least half of the questions mm-hmm. correct, but it was like, you failed miserably. Everybody walked. You're bad. Uh, <laughs> we'll she got see. off, and she got the life insurance, $14,000. <laughs> we'll have to see if we can uh, uh, attempt that one again, because, yeah. yeah, we <laughs> failed so miserably. <laughs> but do you like it? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah I, I agree. It's I think it's really, a fun thing to do together. Yeah, it's really difficult to pick up on how aggressive you're supposed to be like it's fairly easy to know when you're supposed to be good cop yeah um bad cop and accuse are so similar though that i'm like i don't know at what point because they're like read the characters like emotions and stuff and it's always just like them kind of staring off to the side and (laughs) doing like really over the top you know look down and to the left if you're lying or Mm. whatever (laughs) but it's like still i don't know if i'm accusing you or yelling at you because yeah they both kind of just end up yelling at you, so... But it's it's a fun couples game. It is fun. Because we get to turn everything off and just kind of dial in and try to solve the case. I get to watch you drive, which Drive-down is my favorite... Subway. <laughs> it's my favorite thing in video game history, which I stand by it. We're getting a Twitch stream, and it's just going to be me laughing at you driving in video games. He told games. me to turn that direction, though, what's <laughs> so frustrating. What happened? He said, he said to turn there, and he doesn't seem to understand the difference between... The lower road and the upper road, mm-hmm. so he just tells you to turn. And I'm like, dude, that's a subway. And now I'm driving down a subway for the next three miles. 
take the next left here, and then, like, you veer into the wall. <laughs> yeah, like, he doesn't understand if you're on the upper or lower road, so... Yeah, and we figured out that you can't run people over with your car, but you can run them over if you're sprinting down the street. <laughs> yeah, well, you can run them over in your car, you just get in trouble for that one. <laughs> you don't get in trouble for inadvertently punching someone yeah. out with your swinging no, arms. you get charged $50 per homicide that you commit while investigating homicides. <laughs> I think it's fifty dollars a dead body. Oh man, we should do we should do more of those. Not much has changed in the police force in the United mm-hmm. States of America. Oh, sad. Yeah, but it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. It's been a blast. But I'm serious. We're getting a Twitch stream because you're okay. the funniest driver of all time. Not <laughs> that bad. I can drive in real life. They make the controllers so touchy. Yeah. Like, well, it's like from the PS2. It's just like remastered or You can't shit. hold the gas down because then you're driving way too fast to take turns. So I'm just like, tap, 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 <laughs> tap, 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 tap. <laughs> and then you try to turn and... Kill grandma. Uh, take out some mailboxes. You ran into the light pole. <laughs> you literally... I've never proclaimed that I'm good. <laughs> you, you literally ran into your fellow cop's car and then took out the light pole. The light pole was like falling over on your car and electricity was crackling and you just got out like, and I'm here now. Let's interview some people. Well, I am a self-admitted alcoholic. So I feel like the, the, the other characters in the video game, they go, Oh, that's just drunk uncle Brett. He's just over there. He's going to be a beautiful mind. He's going to be like Denzel Washington in that movie where he was a cocaine addict. But yeah, for, uh, we lost homicide. the case. Yeah, so. It had nothing to do with me running under the light pole. <laughs> clearly, clearly didn't come in like a genius either. <laughs> Neither of us did. Sherlock Holmes was a heroin addict. That's all I'm saying, okay? <laughs> <laughs> There's levels. <laughs> mm, I, I we gotta repeat the case if we can, though. I can't. My ego's too big to have lost. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can go back. I think that's definitely an option. And we also went to the store today, and what movie are we watching this afternoon after we have our fish and chips, my beautiful uh, wife? Not Gone with the Wind. Not Gone with the Wind. Not West Side Story? <laughs> Casablanca. Casablanca. I've never seen it. Have you seen it before? Mm-hmm. I've seen it once, yeah. Did you watch it in school? No, actually, uh, I watched it at work when I was at Vanderbilt, because uh, <laughs> I was hanging out with an older lady, and she was like really into old movies, so we kept watching all the old movies oh, that wow. were on... Um, TV. So yeah, we watched Casablanca like together. Like on AMC and stuff? No, um, they had like actual cable TV that you could mm-hmm. watch too, but Vanderbilt had this thing where um, they had like select movies that were maybe 10 or 15 and like they'd have a couple of like new or releases. They weren't like new new, but yeah. like... Past year or so kind of yeah. like airplane movies. Yeah, and it was like stuff that was like kind of popular like ant-man or whatever you know and then they'd have like a couple of like older movies for like the people that weren't into that stuff so um and i think like every month or every couple of months they would rotate the selection out so yeah uh, casablanca was on there one time so we were like oh we'll watch it that's really cool did she give like like hey this is my favorite part no she fell asleep oh okay. <laughs> i ended up watching it by myself <laughs> in my head i was like i've just created a brand new character i love this image <laughs> Of you learning about classic films from an old lady dying of cancer in her hospital bed. She fell asleep and I ended up just sitting by myself and watching it. I think uh, Singing in the Rain got watched that way as well. (laughs) Never seen Singing in the Rain. Uh, The book that we're going to go over again today, because I'm still reading it, he uses uh, Casablanca, but he uses Meet Me in St. Louis constantly, and I've never seen that. Um, So 
Like I'm as used, I'm used, you keep confusing Casablanca with Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frank, well, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> 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 I've never seen that one either. How did, <laughs> I only know that one scene. I don't know if I've seen Gone with the Wind either, to be honest. So me either. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I like that we're doing like all black and whites though, because like I really enjoyed doing Psycho and seeing where it held up and where it didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's something, excuse me, it's something that we've talked about quite a bit on here. Um, is the the limiting potential kind of increases different aspects. Like if you don't have color, story needs to be more compelling. If you don't have special effects, then your practical effects and the way that they're shot need to be more compelling. I think you get a lot more of that, like, theatrical dialogue in the black and whites, where you're, you're like, on a stage set as opposed I, to... I would agree. I don't know that I would say it's because it's black and white, though. I think movies were just more theatrical back then, because mm-hmm. we were still getting used to movies and coming down from yeah. everything being live theater. We're only, like, 30 years into the talkies. Yeah, I, I I would say for sure, though, if you're doing a black and white movie, you have to be, I mean, you should be conscious anyway, but um, you have to be a lot more conscious of your lighting, because mm-hmm. if your lighting and your contrast and all of that isn't compelling, it's going to look a lot more flat, since there isn't yeah. a difference in color, so I'd, I would say black and white in that regard, at least, is probably quite a bit harder to shoot. Does the lighting help envision color? If that makes sense, like you see some black and white footage and you can go, that guy's wearing a blue shirt. Like I can feel that that guy's wearing a blue shirt, even if I can't tell the actual color. I know it's not a white shirt. I know it's not a black shirt based on the shading. I can almost see the color in the film after you kind of immerse yourself into it. Does the lighting have something to do with that? Or is it like, did they have to pick more grandose color? That doesn't make sense because the color is completely eliminated. (laughs) I wouldn't know. Um, oh. <laughs> I've never made a black and white movie. Um, I would, I just think like, and I don't, I don't know for sure that that would totally be the case, but I would imagine like the depth of the scenery would be a lot more flat if you don't mm-hmm. have the color because, you know, behind you, I can see like the reds and the yellows and stuff kind yeah. of popping up behind you. So it gives the background behind you a bit more dimension. Um, and I'm sure they probably still, when they were designing set, like had colorful objects and stuff. So like there'd be different gray tones, mm-hmm. but I just think, um, like Psycho, for instance, has like really good, like dramatic lighting and yeah. stuff and like lots of shadows. Yeah. And I, I just think you have to be more conscious of the drama visually in the lighting when you're doing black and white, because there's not cues as far as color goes mm-hmm. to give people something appealing to look at yeah um <laughs> our windows are open guys. it's a beautiful day in montana so it's like brilliant. the first day of spring so yeah I, I would think um you'd have to be just significantly more conscious of <laughs> we should probably close these <laughs> uh you were right I was i'm wrong. fine i'm fine i'm listening to you i'm dialed uh, <laughs> more conscious of just how um balanced the lighting is overall because i I have said before, lighting is not necessarily my forte, which is quite a shame since cinematography <laughs> is my favorite aspect. I like the way you light things. Like, at I... times it feels crude, but, like, when it feels crude, so does the subject matter of what we're shooting. Like, you you have a great, like, concept, if nothing else, for what kind of lighting you're going for, even when you don't, like, nail it to the wall. Yeah, I, I, I think mine, and that's probably the downfall to digital filmmaking, 
is you have a monitor that you can look at and just be like, well, I like the way it looks, so we're going with that. <laughs> Where um, when it was still film, regardless of whether it was black and white or color, um, I, I think the science of lighting a scene was a lot more technical. And I do have like an old school light meter, mm -hmm. um, like a not a digital one, like a I, I don't even know what the problem. well. What does it do? Because like, I may help. Um, I wish I had a. It's in like my case. That's not worth pulling out. Um, so it's got. It's it's hard to explain. So it's got a half. It almost looks like a. It's not that big, but almost like a golf ball cut in half. Like it's okay. half of a white globe attached to the top, and the white globe reads the light, and then attached to the top of the monitor to the top of the light. It's it's just a little handheld held oh, like you. no bigger, actually smaller probably than a little handheld calculator. It's tiny. Um, like the size of my palm, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the top portion has the little globe on it and it'll spin so I can, um, either like turn it so I can look at it and get the light in front of me. Or yeah. if I'm getting like a subject, I can just hold it up and like click it or whatever. And it's got, um, these dials that spin. And like I said, mine's not digital, so it's all like manual. Mm -hmm. I have to do it uh, manually. And then a button in the middle you push. And when you push the button in the middle, um... I believe the way that it works is it opens like an iris in the bulb. And so the bulb reads the lighting. Yeah. And then as soon as you let go of it, um, there's like a little meter almost like on like a car dash or whatever. that'll mm -hmm. like move whenever the iris is open. And as soon as you close it, the meter stops moving. So the dials on the bottom, you kind of turn to market where the meter read at. And it tells you how um, intense the light is there. And... In theory, which I do not do this, mm -hmm. um, your main lighting and your background lighting, like your hair lighting, like all the different lightings that you're doing. Um, hair lighting? Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a thing called hair lighting whenever you're lighting um, the rim of someone's head yeah. to kind of make them pop from the background a bit. So sometimes you'll cast like a, a light kind of just around the shadow of someone's head that's not really hitting them. I got you. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, like, back behind them so that they pop forward from the background, and that's called a hair lighting. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> You've never told me about that. Because <laughs> I'm not good at lighting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in theory, yeah, your main subject's lighting, and the lighting in the background is supposed to be so many steps down from each other mm -hmm. so that it looks, like, visually balanced and appealing and more yeah. dynamic Yeah, so you're not blending like into the background. You're obviously yeah. stuck forward. Yeah, and your background's not, like, blown out. Like, the lighting mm. isn't, like, all just bland, even tone lighting. Um, and I can't remember how many steps. That's interesting. It's, like, really technical yeah. painting. Yeah. <laughs> there is a literal science to it. And I specifically got the um, analog. Why couldn't I think of the word analog? <laughs> um, I specifically got the analog light reader because it's harder to use. It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, so that helps my decision making as well. Because it was a couple hundred bucks for this thing. Yeah. Um, it's cheaper, so that helps because digital readers are a lot more expensive. Um, it's harder to use, so in theory, you have to spend more time with it and actually learn the practice yeah. of it. So I wanted to... This is another thing that we've talked about, like in regards to my writing, using the typewriter versus using a pen versus using my laptop. Oh, correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when I was taking my lighting class, I purposely bought 
the analog one because I was like, well, if I'm going to teach myself this, I want to learn it mm-hmm. the old school way so I legitimately understand how to do it so that later on when I can afford a digital monitor, I'm just like, boom, boom, done. Let's move on. Yeah. Um, Let's roll. <laughs> so, yeah, in theory, your main lighting, your background lighting, which your main lighting is your key lighting, and your background lighting should be so many steps down from each other. So mm-hmm. the background lighting should not be as intense as your key lighting is. And, um you know, like angling your lighting and controlling the intensity is how you get that like Rembrandt lighting effect and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> Name drop. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because you, you literally have to angle the light a specific way to get that triangle off the nose, which is <laughs> what Rembrandt lighting is so famous for. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I, I would think in theory in black and white films, they were probably a lot more, con- or in um, old school, actual literal yeah. films, they were a lot more conscious of that stuff because you didn't have a monitor to look at. Because I do have a monitor to look at. I am not You're always... You're welcome. <laughs> I am not always great about literally being like how... Um, balanced is my lighting i'm like yeah. well it looks good to me <laughs> does it change from uh, just so i'm tracking what you're what you're saying here um using the monitor versus using the little golf ball meter thing um does it change from the monitor to the larger screen or does the monitor do a pretty good representation of color and as that's where as long as your um monitor is calibrated um mm-hmm pretty much the same then yeah it'll look the same um like with tvs and computers and stuff like that you can calibrate it so that it reads the color um and the saturation and stuff a specific way so whenever you're editing which i have no idea what mine's set to my tv is set to technicolor (laughs) i watch everything in technicolor uh (laughs) the orange suit in the godfather trippy is balls bro. <laughs> and there are um i haven't read uh any reviews on the one you got me there are some monitors that the calibration is just not great on them yeah. so like some monitors will look like a bit more magenta or whatever so it kind of depends on the calibration of the monitor um i don't necessarily i guess look at it for how accurate the color is though so much as like the shot yeah like how yeah. the shot's framed and if i think the lighting in the shot looks good or the angle of the shot looks good or whatever because i'm going to go back and color correct it myself anyway this is true yeah um, something they didn't have the advantage of really doing back then yeah. unless they wanted to like draw on individual yeah so slices the, of film the science of lighting and color and all that was a lot more technical back in the day i have it a lot easier um can i just brief interruption before mm. it leaves my mind um can we now that we are on this like series of black and whites maybe do stanley kubrick's dr strange love we can't i've never seen it you've never seen dr strange love mm. oh my god this, do you own it i, I think so I, I, my brother loved it and we would watch it religiously you can't fight here this is the war room i really want to see nosferatu <laughs> too i've never seen that and that's I'm another down. black and white one we should let's just do a whole run of black and whites <laughs> for 2021 <laughs> So yeah, uh, Casablanca is probably going to be our not too star film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no. As far as the the little light meter that I have, it's uh, just the literal scientific reading of the light. So mm-hmm. if you don't know what the number means, it doesn't mean anything at all to anyone because it's it's literally just like one, two, three, four, five, six. You know, like yeah. that. Like it just gives you a number, um, and you have to know. Uh, how many steps down you need to be in your own brain. So, That's like math. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it everything is. you're saying to me right now, I'm, I'm trying really hard to grasp. 
And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. when does the little Chinese thing with the beans come in? So, yeah, that's why, especially for our short films, I just kind of go off how I think it looks yeah. in the monitor. Because, yeah, it's, it is literally math. Like, you you have to be like, oh, this is 24, and I want the other one to be 30. So, <laughs> let me do some math here. Um, does Casablanca hold up? Do you remember? I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I, Do you remember like watching it and going, wow, like that's a really pretty shot or anything along that way? Because uh, I don't even know like what the big line or big scene is from it. Um, I don't necessarily specifically remember thinking, which I don't know if I paid that much attention back then because that was probably yeah. still pretty early into college for me. Um, I don't remember necessarily thinking, oh, this is like a particularly pretty movie, but I do remember thinking, because I had never seen it before up to Mm -hmm. that point, so I didn't have any frame of reference, um, that it was more interesting than I expected it to be, because... Like, the only thing I really remember is, like, the main character owns a bar in Casablanca, and, like, his old love flame, you know, shows up, and shit goes down, and the two of them are trying to flee the country because they're in trouble, Um, and that's really all I remember. Um, But, yeah, I remember it being... I think that's why I mix it up with the movie that I mix it up with, because that dude's old love flame comes in, but, like, he's trying to forget her based on everything I've read in this book, and then he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, and then goes and fights in the Spanish-American War or some shit. Yeah, I think, if I'm remembering right, in Casablanca, if nobody dies, the two of them end up together, but I don't Hmm. remember if anybody dies or not. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, they're both, like... I can't remember why he's in trouble, but he's in trouble for something to do with the bar that he owns in Casablanca, and, like, he's, like, hiding and, like, trying to figure out how they're going to escape. Yeah, no, we can do a big deep dive on it after we've seen it. I don't... I was just wondering, like, if there was a particular scene, like, as I talk about ad nauseum when when we watch Psycho, the trapped speech is my favorite thing in cinema history <laughs> next to the coin toss flip. You know, like, and when I tell people about these movies, there's always, like, that... Like, I, you might not like the whole thing, but if the coin toss does not blow your fucking mind. <laughs> no, I'm not a, um, I'm ashamed to my fellow film school students. I'm not <laughs> a huge old school movie fan, to be honest. I've yeah. never been a huge fan of, like, really old movies or black and white movies just because, um, which we bought that today, too. Um <laughs> Lord of the Rings for me was Which like... I promised we would watch so that I would quit getting dildo baggins mixed up with Harry Potter. <laughs> um, Lord of the Rings for me was like, because I, I think I might have been like 11 or 12 or something yeah. when I saw it. So like I wasn't like child young, but I was young. Um, was like the first like, that's incredibly fascinating. Like I had kind of dabbled yeah. at 11 <laughs> uh dabbled in writing you know when floppy disks were still a thing and I i'm had to still say... <laughs> i'm still dabbling <laughs> <laughs> i'm just saying how serious is uh 11 year olds work but uh if you're asking me it was pretty serious i was pretty hardcore about it i've already had the department of child services call to my family for the authenticity of my writings <laughs> <laughs> but um like i had like I drew and stuff for fun. I don't mm-hmm. think I ever at any point was like, I want to be an illustrator, but, um, like I drew for fun and I used to like really think I wanted to be a writer and would like yeah. write stories and save stories on floppy disks and whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, I think I kind of vaguely was interested in acting at the time. Cause I know, um, they didn't have like theater in my middle school really. They had kind of a, like, 
like a yeah, little, like, a little after program. school program that I did. And there was like a drug program like Glee club or yeah. something. Yeah. There was like a drug program that went around to schools and did little skits. And I did that just cause it was acting and that oh, was like a, dare, <laughs> but it wasn't dare, but yeah, it was yeah. called uh, act one or act two or something mm-hmm. like that. And it was like, when I'm sure everybody's seen this, like when you're that kid and the teenagers, you know, it's elementary yeah. school and the teenagers come and do the drunk driving skit. This is why you don't drink and drive. Like I did that. My family! <laughs> because they didn't have like actual acting classes. Mm. So that was the closest you could get. Um, but yeah, those were like kind of where my interests were. And then I saw the first Lord of the Rings and it was the first time I was like, oh my God, like this is what, this is what I want to What do. movies can be. Yeah. And even at that time I didn't know I wanted to be behind the scenes. I still thought I wanted to be an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I have, I don't know that I would say he's my favorite director just cause, um, Peter Jackson's work, uh, has been kind of varied. <laughs> uh, he did B-level horror films as well. I so I guess J.J. Abrams did Lord of the Rings. No. So he, he did Star Trek. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> who no. did Fight Club? Oh, shoot. The Who's same that? dude who did Eternal Sunshine, right? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I don't we know forgot I don't that know guy's that. name. I don't know why I don't know that. Um, I've lost it. It's out of my head. Is that J.J. Abrams? Who's J.J.? Who's that? Who's Gil Toro? Guillermo <laughs> 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 Del Toro. Who's Gary Toro? <laughs> Let's see. Fight Club Direction. Schneider? William Schneider? David Fincher. David yeah, Fincher. how did I yeah. not know that? Yeah, David Fincher. Phenomenal director. Same dude who did Eternal Sunshine did Fight Club. Did he do Eternal Sunshine? I, I'm 90% sure, because I think you told me that once, and then I posted a Fight Club clip, and one of my family members goes, oh, David Fincher's best film. <laughs> and I was like, the same dude? <laughs> He is a really good director, but um, Peter Jackson got his start, I think, in like low budget B horror films. Yeah. And um, that's the Lord of the Rings guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, his his films have been a bit more hit and miss, but I I have immense respect for him for what mm-hmm. he did with um, Lord of the Rings and. Um, that was all shot in like New Zealand, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh, and almost all of its practical effects, like obviously um, Gollum and. Um, mm-hmm all of that stuff where it's like literal goblins that you can't make that's CGI, but uh, completely, which maybe some people don't like completely reinvented the way CGI was at the time and developed how CGI works now. Um, really? Yeah. Andy circus, the actor that plays um, Gollum, I think, I don't know if he literally headed it up, but I know his work that he did for Gollum was a huge part of developing the program, but there's a company called Weta Workshop mm-hmm. um, that completely reinvented the way CGI was captured and the way it was developed and stuff. So, um, yeah, movies didn't look like that before is, <laughs> that is movie. It, is that the technique where they put like the little the tennis balls, balls yeah. all over yeah, everybody's you wear body? The green suit. Yeah. yeah, you have all the So, balls. no Lord of the Rings, we don't get Iron Man. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, yeah, they completely reinvented the way screen capturing works for CGI. Um, I'm down to watch that. But... <laughs> um, I've so... given you shit from the day one about Lord of the Rings simply because I've only seen the first 10 minutes once. <laughs> I tried to read The Hobbit way too young. I started on The Hobbit and I made it 30 pages before I've, to this day, sworn off J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, but. My dad and I took my baby brother to the film, 
uh, when I'm three years older than my quote-unquote baby brother. God bless you, Ben. Um, still your baby brother because yeah. you are older. <laughs> but he loves the Lord of the Rings. He loves Harry Potter. He loves Star Wars. He's a nerd. And <laughs> I'm going to rub some of that off on you because I like that yeah, stuff yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so my dad and I go because dad liked the books. I hated the books. I had no interest in seeing the movie. Third uh, I read. <laughs> yeah, I fell asleep hella early into the movie <laughs> knocked out for the next two and a half hours i did not wake up for any of the battle sequences except i woke up to take a pee like halfway through the movie the golem was on the screen but i don't know what the fuck he was talking about and i uh, looked over and dad was asleep so ben was there basically there alone Aww. sitting between me and dad <laughs> We were both like crashed out on his shoulder, but he swears to God, it was like one of his favorite films. He had the books. He went to school for some sort of a Halloween thing uh, when he was in high school, dressed as Gandalf. And my mom made the, not Gandalf. Is it Gandalf? Gandalf is in Lord of the Rings. Okay. I always mix him up. (laughs) with You started laughing at me, so I didn't know if I got the right old wizard dude. But uh, mom made him like this gown and he had the little fucking cane and the big beard. And, you know, he went and did that whole thing. That's fun. Yeah, he, he he was in love with the Lord of the Rings movies, but my only experience was falling asleep. It was maybe the closest I've come to a connection with my father, <laughs> was both of us ignoring my little gay brother at the same exact time and falling Aww. asleep during a favorite activity. <laughs> I am. Um, we bought a little uh, cheap, like $10, three-film box set that has the three Lord of the Rings movies oh, on it. No, we're not getting away without saying your quote of the day. You were like, Casablanca? That's eh, worth it for $4. And I was like, oh, one of the greatest films ever made. It's worth it for 4 bucks." But it's not bad for $4. It was $4. in the discount bin. It was at the bottom of the discount bin. It's not bad for $4. No, I am. I do want to buy the actual collection of The Lord of the Rings later because um, there's hours upon hours upon hours of behind-the-scenes yeah. footage. And they show you... Um, they do these big sweeping like castle scenes and stuff like that, and you would think it was CGI, but they literally built miniatures of all of these sets, and they show you like no the cameras shit. like swooping through these castles they built. So instead of like going helicopter, they they use the minis. Yeah, the like a huge chunk of the movie, like all the scenery and stuff, is uh, which with the Hobbit they did CGI, and I think Lord of the Rings looks better because mm-hmm. they did practical effects on almost everything. Isn't the Titanic? Isn't that how they did the movie? Like they they didn't have the actual ship, obviously. I think, so. I think they used miniatures, and then they came in with the cameras and stuff. I think so, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, that's how they did yeah. the Lord of the Rings. They built, and when I say miniatures, because these are such vast sets, the miniatures are as tall as people are. Yeah, like they're but they're not, not castles. Yeah, they're not <laughs> castles, but they're not like tabletop miniatures. Mm-hmm. They're like person-sized miniatures, and they go through with the cameras, and like you get to see like all of that, and then like filming these sequences of. That's wild. These miniatures and like you get to like learn about like what a workshop and stuff. So I want to buy the collection set because like that for me was like my turning point is like this is what filmmaking is. <laughs> <laughs> of the behind the scenes stuff even more than the actual film. Like seeing the process kind of woke you up to it. I think collectively the whole thing like I watched the movie and was like oh my god how. Yeah. And then watched all the behind-the-scenes stuff, and I was like, this is incredible, and this is like a turning point in yeah. history. No, that was a huge thing for me with, with writing. I mean, the book that, in the same way, kind of gave me permission will forever be Polonix Survivor, and that's why I've got the tattoo on my arm. Um, but the the understanding of film came from somewhere was my dad bought me the collector's edition of The Godfather on my 13th birthday, 
and we sat on the living room floor and watched, I think, the first two back-to-back, much to my mother's chagrin, you know, because all she could remember was the horse head scene from the first movie, and she goes, it's the most violent movie ever made. And no, it's not the most violent (laughs) movie ever made, but we watched, like, it's probably five hours, the first, oops, shit, sorry. First two movies are probably five hours combined. And we either did them in one night or we did them back-to-back nights and watched both of those films. And then we went to the library, I think, the next day, and I found out that they were all based on a book series. And so I learned about Puzo, and I learned about The Godfather and Omerta and, like, all the books that the movies were based on. And so I was able to read these books and then sit down with my DVD collection and, like, watch specific scenes and almost read along with them. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, I could be, I could write a movie. Like, <laughs> like it seems so insane as a little kid to go, there's a film. And it's like, oh, no, there's a writer that's like 30 steps you know, yeah. in the past here. And so like, I, I don't mean any disrespect to movies like don't Psycho. Don't diss me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean any disrespect to movies like Psycho. Psycho's or better than the book Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> or movies like uh, Casablanca or any of that, because... Um, Obviously, especially for how limited their resources were at the time, um, those were incredible inventions in the art form. And I, I get, like, I appreciate that's where we came from, so that is essentially yeah. the beginning. But for me, I think it's that, like, what you were just talking about, and it's why you don't like Shakespeare and stuff. For I me, fucking can't stand <laughs> for me, you did a good job with Macbeth. It's one of the best things <laughs> ever written. But outside of that, go fuck yourself. Oh, but for me, <laughs> Casablanca and the original Psycho and like all these old black and white films that people like Citizen Kane. I don't like Citizen. I Kane. have to watch it, so we have to watch it because I need yeah, to know what I, Rosebud is. No, we can <laughs> we can buy it. I wouldn't mind owning it, but it's like. I'd buy it from the $5 bin. Like, it's not a movie that I like. And people, like, tout it as being, like, this incredible movie. And there is a cool, like, crane shot scene that, like, is like, oh, it's this incredible shot. But, I like, I don't watch that and go, that's it. For me, that's not, like, my experiences falling in love with movies. It's just like Shakespeare isn't your experience of falling in love with writing. So it's like, for me, that's not the pinnacle of film for me. It's the initial building block. It's the the, the moving, shaking side of it. Like, there's nothing... Like, you and I... video games when all you got was square pixels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're not doing square pixels anymore. (laughs) Like, you and I can capture... Probably right now, if we wanted to do it with the downstairs neighbor, we could figure out how to do it. That wide shot that we get at the beginning of Psycho where it dials into a hotel room window and then we go through the window and we're in the room. But at the time, that was revolutionary. It was how the fuck did now you line you those shots up? Own a drone. Or own a drone. <laughs> yeah, you could own a drone and you can get a better shot. You don't need to cut because, oh, fuck, we need to move the crane up three streets. <laughs> And blend these shots together. I just got to get my little toy robot, and I can fly it directly into the window. Did you see that new bowling yes, alley move? I did see that. <laughs> <laughs> that was impressive. Um, I went into it because I had seen headlines for it three separate times, talking about how yeah. it was an incredible shot, and it was the best shot ever, and people were so impressed. So by the time I watched it, I was like, mm, that's good. Did you catch the Big Lebowski <laughs> reference? Yeah. <laughs> It was good, yeah, for sure, but, uh, I, I mean. Another movie I've never seen. <laughs> the Big Lebowski. 
You never seen The Big Lebowski? No, I didn't know it was a Coen Brothers. I just thought it was a dumb bowling comedy, and so I never bothered with it. I was like, I, I like stoner movies, but like I don't need to see any more. <laughs> I've seen all the James Franco, and I didn't realize that it was a Coen Brothers production until like it's not a bowling three movie. months ago. <laughs> well, he likes bowling. Isn't yeah. that a big thing? But that's not what the movie's about. The movie's about him. The movie's about the movie's the about the dude. Yeah, the movie's about the dude trying to get his rug or something. <laughs> something I can't remember. <laughs> it's a very quirky. Like the character is very yeah, quirky. Yeah, it's the young Cohen brothers. But I need to see Big Lebowski as well. Yeah, we get. We'll we'll get there. It's not. We're not doing classics. <laughs> We're doing classics. Love. I love the Cohen brothers. They did one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> We haven't even touched your topics. That's okay. You want to dive into the topics or do you want to keep talking about stuff? It's your call. What stuff do you want to talk about? I don't know. Boobs. Is that a white t-shirt? Is that a white t-shirt? So I've gone quite a bit further, crew, into the book, uh, The Anatomy of Story by John Truby. And I've got a couple of things that I'd like to talk about. I am up on page 277. So one might say I'm hauling ass through this thing. Um... I have a couple of issues with it. Um, We're not going to deep dive into those. But one of them is I don't think I have an issue. Like, I've got two issues. And the first issue is this, um, he's got this concept about building conflict. And I'm going to show Kristen a literal math chart that he drew to describe conflict. It looks like an envelope. It looks like an envelope. With a big X. Yeah, it's four corners. All the arrows are pointing towards each other. It's supposed to be your hero, two minor opponents, one major opponent, and they're all in conflict with each other. And frankly, I think I'm too stupid to understand what he's trying to tell me there right now. So we may revisit that one in the future. And my second one is he's got a whole chapter on uh, building your story world that I found uh, boring and unnecessary. Because he's like, in the forest, you feel isolated. In the jungle, you feel like you're afraid. In space, it goes on forever. In the water, you might drown. Fargo, there's a lot of snow. Exactly. And I was like, I don't know if I'm way, way past needing story explained to me or if I am not understanding what the, but it's one of the later chapters, which blew my mind. But anyway, so those so far, um, 270 pages in, um, are my only real issues. Everything else I'm finding at least relatively interesting. It's a very technical, as we explained, I think, on the last show. explanation that's like if you have your bachelor's degree read the book if you don't let's stay focused on our course right now (laughs) you don't need your mind blown up with like an extra 22 rules speaking of bachelor's degrees speaking of bachelor's degrees brett and i going back to get our associates (laughs) (laughs) brett and i have a date scheduled Uh to go tour the college here we're going to try to get into the master's program. But they only let in 50 people for my degree. Good luck. <laughs> and Kristen's going to get hers. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't say, because I was looking at the differences for yours and mine, which I think the stuff you have to turn in is a bit more intense than the yeah. stuff I have to turn in, but I do have stuff I have to turn in. But they didn't say, like, a designated GPA on yours on mine, which I'm fine. I'm above that. But they were like, you have to have a 3.0. I was like, okay, well. <laughs> 
for them? I don't know what my GPA was. I know it was not stellar because I went in with like a point zero two because mm-hmm. I just forgot to tell them that I was joining the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> my GPA was dog shit going into it. I think I pulled myself above a three, but I'm not 100%. You can request a... Um, I might still have it. It's not an official transcript, but you can request a copy of your transcript. Remind me what I did transcript. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my first things that I wanted to kind of go over are two quick notes on the concept of an opponent. So he's got this whole chapter based on character um, where he's uh, basically breaking down like character technique how to reveal your character how to give your character an internal versus an external arc it's a whole chapter based on how to fill out you know your main character your opponent the people that they're going to meet your friend opponent your opponent friend like these different variants of things give me a funny face yeah i just i don't know like i mean i know you've addressed that it's a technical book but like well i feel like he takes away all the fun of creativity yeah He's like, step one. Well, so does my professor going, you use your semicolon too often. But sometimes you need to be reminded there are rules. Follow the rules, break the rules, but do them on purpose, know them. Um, And I'm not doing all of these things about um, opponent because I'll, I'll read you just the titles. So the first one that he's got, the name of the thing is called Creating Your Hero, Step Four, The Opponent. He does and, literally have steps. Yeah. Step one. <laughs> step one, step two, step three, step four. And 4.1, if you were going to drop it down into your notebook, is make the opponent necessary. Two is make him human. He always uses him. He explains that way early in the book. He goes, all my characters are going to be he because it's easier for me to speak like that. So he Sexist does address that. Three is give him values that oppose the values of the hero. But I'm covering four and five today. So I'm going to do those. Do you want to do just four and then do five? Or do you want me to do four and five together? And then Are we they can related talk. to each other? Yeah, that's why I picked them. Okay, four. <laughs> Let's do them together. All right. Because my overall argument and what I want you to hold in your head right now. Holding it. You ready? Ready. Batman versus Joker. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Because he doesn't address that, but I literally wrote that at the end of these two paragraphs. And I was like, that's the best way I can remember these two concepts. So number four, give the opponent a strong but flawed moral argument. And then my computer's going to do what it does. Is it dying? No, it's just not plugged in and I'm not remembering to hit my little pad. My opponent is my computer. It's strong but flawed. (laughs) So give the opponent a strong but flawed moral argument. An evil opponent is someone who is inherently bad and therefore mechanical and uninteresting. In most real conflict, there is no clear sense of good and evil, right and wrong. In a well-drawn story, both hero and opponent believe that they have chosen the correct path, and both have reasons for believing so. They are also both misguided, though in different ways. The opponent attempts to justify his actions morally, just as the hero does. A good writer details the moral argument of the opponent, making sure that it is powerful and compelling, but ultimately wrong. Number five. Give him certain similarities to the hero. 
The contrast between hero and opponent is powerful only when both characters have strong similarities. Each then presents a slightly different approach to the same dilemma. And it is in these similarities that crucial and instructive differences become the most clear. By giving the hero and the opponent certain similarities, you also keep the hero from being perfectly good and the opponent from becoming perfectly evil. Never think of the hero and opponent as extreme opposites. Rather, they are two possibilities within a range of possibilities. The argument between hero and opponent is not between good and evil, but between two characters who have weaknesses and needs. The Joker versus Batman. I'm going to counter... Neither... Neither of these are really the true hero or bad guy of the actual story. But technically a hero and bad guy to themselves. I think that's what he's saying. Gonna go a little dorky. (laughs) Sunshine. (laughs) Since we've been talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, Smeagol and Gollum. They're technically one person. Who's Smeagol? It's Gollum's other... Oh, he's a schizophrenic? So... Is he the one that goes, oh, the precious? Yes. Okay. So, um... Gollum originally uh, was an actual normal hobbit. He found the ring. um, Kept the ring for far, far, far too long because the ring slowly corrupts you over time and he became this, like, basic cave little Gollum monster that he is. And when he has separation from the ring, because that's how Frodo gets the ring, he loses the ring. When he has separation from the ring, he has moments of clarity where he to some extent kind of remembers his former personality. Mm -hmm. So he has moments where he seems sort of like he wants to be good and he wants to do the right thing. Like an addict. Yeah, but the obsession of the ring, like when he's too deep under its spell, turns him into this like, I will kill anyone so i can keep my ring kind mm-hmm. of character um so yeah that's my <laughs> my comparison he's technically yeah. his own good and bad guy i guess technically the true bad guy is the ring but for Gollum. for all four well i don't again i've not seen the film i've not watched <laughs> the movies but i'm assuming that the bad guy mountain mordor dude like that dude probably Sorry. wants the power because he feels that he is the one who can use it for good and the hobbits are like we need the power so that we can overcome the mordor dude but we need to like throw the ring into the thing to destroy the thing yeah so the hobbits (laughs) um the good guys collectively all around want to destroy the ring because the ring is evil the ring does not do good for anyone anyone who has it's just corruption yeah Yeah. anyone who has it is corrupted by it then yeah sauron wants the ring because it's the ultimate form of power and it will destroy everything um, so technically, yes, yeah, Sauron's the big bad guy, but the ring is the symbol of corruption and destruction. Um, and whoever has it has the ability to wield like unimaginable yeah. corruption. Um, but like there, there's a bit of an argument there, I think in this light of 
Gollum isn't personally hurting anyone by keeping the ring. Gollum doesn't use the ring to hurt anyone. Gollum just wants the ring. Like, yeah. the the ring is, yeah, basically an addiction. Like, he's like, oh, this is my little precious. He cuts <laughs> it and keeps it to himself. And the entire time Gollum has had the ring, the Gollum, or the ring has just been forgotten. Like, mm-hmm. the ring just has not existed because Gollum hasn't done anything with the ring. Gollum's just kept it to himself. And then, um... Bilbo, which is what the Hobbit is about, ends up with a ring, and then Bilbo passes the ring on to Frodo because the ring is mm-hmm. killing Bilbo essentially as well. Um, and once it's with people that like have positions of power, they're able to use the ring to cause bad things. So the yeah. ring ultimately needs to be destroyed. But Gollum isn't technically like totally flawed bad guy because he's not trying to use the ring to hurt anyone. Like he just wants it to. For himself, but then Smeagol, good side version of Gollum, is like, oh, but ring hurts people. Yeah. <laughs> so. That makes perfect sense. And it also helps, in my mind, like, illustrate the the conflict map that I just showed you. Where, because everybody's fighting over this one object and they think they know what they need to do with this one object, it becomes their individual obsessions mm-hmm. and their weaknesses, all of them is not having it. So they're all justifying their opposition to one another over this ring. Much in the way Batman versus Joker. <laughs> Control of Gotham. Or, you know, where the Joker's like, no, we can abuse the fuck out of the system and I can rule supreme, you know, but I'll kill everybody. Like, that's the basic thing that breaks down between the two of them is one of them's a vigilante who doesn't kill anybody, and one of them's a psychopath who kills everybody. But outside of that, their moral arguments are this place is a shithole. <laughs> I've been abused by the system here in some way. I think, too, especially reflecting on Batman as... Bruce Wayne, not just Batman, that definitely makes that argument mm-hmm. like more apparent because Bruce Wayne himself is not really that great of a dude. Yeah, he's a shithead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Batman is like, oh, stop evil, but also I'm going to destroy the city while I'm doing yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a good guy, I think, may sum up rules number four and five for both the opponent and the hero. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip the last thing that we talked about just because I, I, I really want to get into that and then I'm going to go make my beautiful wife a beautiful dinner. Fish and chips. Fish and chips night. So I'm moving from page 91 to page 272 <laughs> if you're following along with the reading. Um, and what I really like here is he doesn't like the word backstory. Which if you're if you're writing or you've ever watched a film where it's like, why am I learning this about this character? You know, it's when's the last time you saw Rain Man? Uh, it's been several years, but I do remember the movie. Yeah, you remember that like it's the brother. Um, Tom Cruise. Yeah, has <laughs> the autistic little brother, mm. older brother, whatever it's it is, older, and he inherits the dead father's money, and he's a, you know, Tom Cruise is a gambling Using addict. Using his brother to count cards. Yeah. But we learn over time about the autistic brother's fear of the fire alarm. You remember that? I remember him having specific 
ticks, but yeah. didn't specifically remember. Yeah. Well, he goes alarm. to that lady's house. I can't remember how they get there. After his brother freaks out, I think, in the casino, and the fire alarm starts going off while they're cooking dinner, and he starts banging his head against the wall and flipping the fuck out and having this beautifully horrific... Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman meltdown. Uh, fuck the graduate. Rain Man's all you need. <laughs> But he has this concept in this book of, instead of the backstory, call it the ghost. Keep it immediate. You don't need to know everything about your character, but you can use small symbols throughout your writing um, to accentuate the same thing from the past. Much like the fire alarm, which is the reason, ultimately, if I remember, that him and Tom Cruise fell apart in the first place. The fire alarm sets off the autistic spectrum for Dustin Hoffman's character. I thought they fell apart because he did something to hurt Tom Cruise. Like, I thought he had done something. Oh, I thought they had a childhood fire. It's been a while for me. Yeah, I can't I can't really remember what it was, but I, I thought he had, like, a tense relationship with them because his brother had hurt him, or, like, something had happened, and his brother had caused him harm in some way. I thought way. Tom Cruise was the jackass in that He movie. is the jackass, yeah. but I... I think that's why their relationship is strained is like Dustin has special needs and um, he doesn't understand and he had done something. It's on Netflix. Is it? Yeah. I have to revisit it. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but he, I, if I'm remembering right, because he's special needs, he had done something that in some way had hurt Tom Cruise's character as a child. So he had carried this lifelong resentment towards his brother. I thought it was somehow tied to the fire alarm sequence. Which it well, may be. Yeah, well, it may have been like a fire or something that he had started. I have yeah. no idea. But. Well, let's take my gross uh, mis-exaggeration of the film Rain Man that I thought, and now I'm not so confident in, and use it to apply the ghost theory, mm -hmm. right? So um, this is page 272 and 273. I'm going to go with a paragraph from uh, its section two of the subsection... God damn it. The 22 story steps. Um, number two is ghost and story world. So, so I'm going to read the first one, give you an example from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, and then there's not a specific example. Ooh. There's a Casablanca example. I'll do that one, despite the fact that I've not seen the movie Lord of yet. the Rings example. Let me see if there's one. There's Tootsie. Nope. So it's Casablanca bust. But, yeah. No, I'll let you give me the Lord of the Rings example for number two. Does that work? Yeah. So, page 272, The Anatomy of Story. There are two kinds of ghosts in a story. The first and most common is an event from the past that still haunts the hero in the present. The ghost is an open wound that is often the source of the hero's psychological and moral weakness. The ghost is also a device that lets you extend the hero's organic development backwards, before the start of your story. So the ghost is a major part of the story's overall foundation. You can also think of this first kind of ghost as the hero's internal opponent. It is the great fear that is holding him back from action. Structurally, the ghost acts as a counter device. The hero's de desire drives him forward, but his ghost holds him back. Henrik Ibsen, who plays whose plays put great emphasis on the ghost, 
described the structure step as, quote, sailing with a corpse in the cargo. In your example, and then we can discuss and or we can do both ghosts but your example for ghost number one is it's a wonderful life short story the greatest gift by philip van doren stern screenplay by francis goodrich and albert hackett and frank capra 1946 george bailey's desire is to see the world and build things but his ghost his fear of what the tyrant Potter will do to his friends and family if he leaves holds him back. Do you want to discuss Ghost 1 or just do Ghost 2 and discuss them overall? I can discuss that. I haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life in several years either. My mom so. used to make me watch it every Christmas. I could... <laughs> I've seen it. I haven't <laughs> seen it in several years. Yeah, but I like the concept of the ghost creating an immediacy to your backstory so you don't get lost in character development. Mm -hmm. I don't need to know... The man with no name from all those Clint Eastwood movies, you know, like Fistful of Dollars and shit. I don't even need to know his name. I don't need to know where he came from, but I need to know why he's so pissed off. <laughs> what drives him nuts? What makes the guy from Shane, you know, the other Western, so gun adverse? Why doesn't he want to pick up the pistol when it's thrown at the sheep herder's feet, as Bill Hicks put it? You know, the ghosts. <laughs> Are we traveling again? <laughs> Is COVID a thing of the past? Um, so, yeah, Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, I thought you wanted to use oh. that for second ghost. Oh, sorry, go. No, do you want to do main ghost? No, go. Does <laughs> the wine hit you, love? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so, second ghost. Um, a second kind of ghost, though uncommon, is a story in which a ghost is not possible because the hero lives in a paradise. Instead of starting the story in slavery, in part because of his ghost, the hero begins free. But an attack will soon change all of that. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair, and The Deer Hunter. Very different films. Are examples. Seen either of those. Deer Hunter, I believe, is about um, Vietnam veterans. It's the one that has that famous Russian roulette scene where he's screaming at him to pull the trigger. I've never seen it, but I've only seen that scene. <laughs> Add it to the list. Uh, no. A word of caution is warranted here. Don't overwrite exposition at the start of your story. Many writers try to tell the audience everything about their hero from the first page including the how and why of the ghost. This mass of information actually pushes your audience away from your story. Instead, try withholding a lot of information about your hero, including the details of his ghost. The audience will guess that you are hiding something and will literally come toward your story. They think there's something going on here. And I'm going to figure out what it is. Occasionally, the ghost event occurs in the first few scenes. But it's much more common for another character to explain the hero's ghost. Somewhere in the first third of the story. In rare instance, the ghost is exposed in the self-revelation near the end of the story. But that is usually a bad idea. Because then the ghost the power of his past, dominates the story and keeps pulling everything backwards. 
thought I, I thought initially I was going to be like, this is kind of preachy, but yeah. <laughs> None that actually works for what I was... I just love the immediacy of the ghost as opposed to backstory. I don't need to know that he shit his pants in the third grade, but I do need to know that he grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I mean, I guess that's a way of like trying to explain it. I don't know that just not calling it backstory makes that any less backstory because that's still technically <laughs> backstory. It's just more immediate backstory. Um, What's our Lord of the Rings? <laughs> so, um. How do we find out about Gollum? No, not Gollum. We're going to talk about someone else. Smeagol? No. Gandalf? No. Uh, Aragorn. Legolas? Uh, Aragorn um, is like, when you first meet the character, just kind of like this, I think they call him a ranger is what he's called. And he, like he the archer dude? No, that's Legolas. Oh. Um, he basically just like roams and lives off the land and he looks like a hobo when you first <laughs> meet him. Like he, do, he's, he doesn't strike you as like a respectable member of society. It's like, who's that hoodlum in the corner over yeah, there, yeah, you yeah. know? And um, like... I don't think you find out immediately. I think they reveal it a bit later in the movie, but you find out um, he's actually a descendant from, like, a line of kings from, like, the main oh, kingdom wow. of, like, men. Because, um, you know, there's, like, the elf kingdom and where the hobbits live and all that. And so he's descended from, like, the main kingdom of the humans. Um, oh, I didn't even know humans existed in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's... Uh, like, they all kind of sort of live separately. Like, they do, like, mingle a bit. But for the most part, like, the dwarves kind of keep to themselves. The hobbits keep yeah. to themselves. The elves keep to themselves. And then the humans have their own kingdom. And uh, the human kingdom has kind of fallen into quite a bit of disrepair and is run by a group of people called the stewards. So they're not kings. They're just kind of maintaining the household mm-hmm. of the kingdom. Um, like indentured servants. No, they they live like kings. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're uh, they're just running the place because basically Aragorn does not want to be king, um, and you don't find that out right away. Like you, I think reveal mm-hmm. that later on. But basically, yeah, he's supposed to be the king, and he doesn't want to be king. He's like, nah, not for me. <laughs> um, and he's like very very in love with the elven princess. Um, and elven princess's dad is basically like, you can't be with my daughter. You're a hoodlum running around the streets. Is he the shaggy-haired dude <laughs> mm-hmm. with the goatee? I don't know if he has a goatee, but yeah, he's yeah. shaggy-haired. Um, but yeah, uh, Princess's dad's basically like, you can't be with my daughter unless you're king. You know, like, yeah. get your shit together. <laughs> so, um, get your shit together and become royalty. <laughs> <laughs> so you get this, like, I think whenever you kind of realize... So, like your dad would be happy if I was, like, a fucking tire change mechanic. <laughs> At O'Reilly Auto Parts or something. But you get kind of this beautiful, I guess, flashback-esque, even though I know, like, flashbacks aren't necessarily the best way to always do this stuff, but you get this really pretty flashback scene because he wears this really pretty, like, ornate gym necklace Mm -hmm. that she gave him that's her necklace. And, like, somebody asks him about it, and you get, like, this flashback of her, like, giving it to him, and he's, like, going on this journey to destroy the ring because he's trying to find, like, his purpose and, like his place in the world because he doesn't want to be king and so he's basically doing this to prove he's worthy of being with the woman that he loves yeah and so you get this cute little like flashback of her being like oh i love you take my necklace and i think you uh get like some kind of flashback sequence of the dad basically being like you can't be with my daughter you're a loser <laughs> <laughs> so his so, ghost is he's trying to win the heart of this woman or the approval of well, the father he, he's his ghost is that he doesn't want to step into the role that he's supposed to be in. Like, that's not the life that he wants to live. And there's all this pressure around him of, you have to go do it. 
mm-hmm. and he just wants to be with his girl, you know? Yeah. That's a that's a really good example. I haven't seen the film, so I can't really... <laughs> um, let me see. Child's play. He doesn't want to be in the doll's body. He wants his body back. <laughs> well, the ghost... No, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was trying to think, because he uses the Godfather quite a bit, but he doesn't use the Godfather... Um, in this particular section, he uses Saving Private Ryan quite a bit, but he doesn't use it in this particular section. And I, I guess the ghost in Saving Private Ryan is Ryan at the very beginning of the film as an old man looking back on the loss. But the real ghost is Tom Hanks used to be a school teacher and he had, doesn't want to have any fucking part of this goddamn war or Michael in The Godfather where he wants his family's acceptance. And, and the then notebook. his father gets killed. In the notebook, <laughs> he wants his wife to remember who he is. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I've never seen that. <laughs> never seen it. I saw the notebook when it first came out. I have seen the notebook. <laughs> I know he paints his house a different color. It's a weird story about a stalker that doesn't have any of the music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, he visits the nursing home every day and tells his wife the story of their life because she doesn't remember who he is. <laughs> And then in the end, they die in bed together. Which might be, you know, what if it's a false narrator? He's just an orderly who falls in love with an old woman and finger fucks her every night. Why oh, you gotta be weird? That he was the real husband. <sighs> Why do you have to be I don't know, but I'm gonna go make some motherfucking fish and chips for the beautiful, the effervescent. Thank God for that dress. Kristen Blue. You got anything to add, love? Uh, I'm. I'm more appropriate than you are on mic. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. <laughs> Let's go watch Casablanca, which is White House. Casablanca. It's the white woman's house. It's literally Why? Casa, like me, Casa, su Casa. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm going to go now. It's in Blanca. All right. All right. Have a good night. I mean, I took Spanish for a reason.